Well, I'm sure you heard the sad news this week that Alex Trebek lost his battle with cancer, the longtime host of the Jeopardy game show. Um, and as that news broke, uh, I enjoyed watching several um, uh, specials that just people had done interviews with Alex over the years. And um, I, I just enjoyed watching those and, and hearing his stories. Um, the NFL Network, of, of all places, posted an interview that they had done with Alex a year before uh, when his cancer had been diagnosed, but they did an interview with him to talk about um, his show kind of from a, a football perspective, of course. Um, and he mentioned that one of his favorite memories of hosting Jeopardy took place, I think it was in 2017, when a category of football came up on the game and it was left untouched by all the players. And you could, he said you could always tell when, when players left a category untouched, they didn't want to go there. And they answered all, did all the questions on the board and that category, uh, football category was still there untouched. And so let me show you this. It's about a minute long, but uh, just, just so you get this and appreciate Alex and I have a point to this at the end of it. So your choice, do or don't name this play in which the quarterback runs the ball and can choose to pitch it to another back. It's an option play. Ryan? <laughs> uh, football, 400. I can tell you guys are big football fans. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tom Landry perfected the shotgun formation with this team. <laughs> Dallas Cowboys. Uh, do you think we should go to commercial? <laughs> Ryan? Take it on to 600. Okay, by signaling for one of these, a returner can reel in a kick without fear of getting tackled. Fair catch. Two clues left, Ryan. 800. These penalties are simultaneous violations by the offense and defense that cancel each other out. And they are called offsetting penalties. Let's look at the uh, $1,000 clue, just for the fun of it. <laughs> Jimmy? As Minneapolis's U.S. Bank Stadium prepares to host Super Bowl 52, I'm looking at the Ring of Honor with names from this defensive line that took the Vikings to four Super Bowls. If you guys <laughs> ring in and get this one, I will die. <laughs> Who are the purple people eaters? We're going to take a break. I have to talk to them. All right. So uh, as Alex went through that experience, um, that as I was watching that this week, I, I thought the text that we look at here today um, fits that. Uh, because the place that we land in in our Core 52 schedule this week um, takes us to um, a passage in Matthew 22 and also in Psalm 110. And both of them, um, especially the Matthew 22 context, comes from a place where questions are being asked of Jesus. And then where Jesus turns around and asks a question back at those who are questioning him. And so in the theme of, um, of that, of answering the key question that Jesus wants us to think about as we begin this new series today, the question that Jesus would pose towards those who would look to diminish him or attack him or tear him down was simply the question, Matthew 22, who's the Messiah? 
And so today we, we begin this new series that we're called, we're calling Adventually, um, with the word Advent, which is a Christmas theme. And you'll notice a few Christmas decorations have been put up. We put a few of those up. Uh, some of you, I got a few pictures this week of people who have uh, Christmas trees up. Anybody else join that fun party? I saw some Christmas lights at some neighbor's house, and so the pressure's on. And so, uh, uh, so that's fun. It's 2020. We don't, none of those old rules apply. So we can, uh, we can certainly uh, put up our Christmas trees. But as we begin in this series, we're going to kind of go back before Christmas in, in the Bible, in the text and the story of the Bible, and look at a number of places where in the Old Testament that, um, that a, a figure was predicted, a figure was promised who would come and who would do wonderful things in service of God for God's people. And so Advent, the coming of the Lord, the coming near of the Lord, um, was promised but it took a time. In the text that we're going to look at here this morning, eventually in Psalm 110, it was 900, 1,000 years before Jesus showed up. And so, adventually uh, is the theme that we're going to look at. You see, God makes promises, and oftentimes it takes time for us to see those promises fulfilled and realized. And uh, that can be discouraging to us. And so, I think it's important that when we find ourselves in places of waiting, trying to figure out, well, where is God in the midst of all this stuff going on? We need to understand God usually doesn't point us to dates and times. He points us to a person. And that person that we're going to begin looking at today is, is of course, is Jesus. But to understand who Jesus is, we need to ask the question that Jesus asked of those who questioned him there in Matthew 22, who is this Messiah? And so I hope today to begin to unpack that, and we're going to begin to look at a number of themes that the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would do, would be, and how he would serve God and serve us. And so, um, eventually, will be our theme for the next few weeks as we lead up to the Christmas season. And so, Matthew 22, if you have a Bible, you're welcome to open there. We're going to read a passage at the end of that chapter briefly. But it presents a scene where Jesus is being peppered with questions by Pharisees and Sadducees, those that uh, kind of religious folks who were um, in many ways an enemy of Jesus. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't like Jesus. They were threatened by Jesus in so many ways. And so they were always looking to trip Jesus up. And Matthew 22 is just a couple of days. Some people think this is Tuesday. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. So we're within two, three, four days of, of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry and life before the cross. And the Pharisees and Sadducees are, are peppering him with questions, hoping to trip him up. And if they could do this, they were hoping that they could turn the crowds who love Jesus so much. They hoped that they, if they could find some doctrinal chink or, or thing that wasn't popular with the crowds, that he could turn, they could turn the crowds against him. He would lose his popularity. They would have good reason to discredit him, destroy him, and get rid of him once and for all. And so earlier in that chapter, they come to him and they say, Hey, Jesus, is it right for us to pay taxes to Caesar? Uh, the Roman occupier who was persecuting and made life miserable for the Jewish people. Um, it was an easy thing to fall into that trap. If you answer incorrectly, the crowds hated Rome. They wanted Rome gone. They believed, one of the things they believed was that Messiah would come and get rid of Rome. And so when Jesus answers with the wisdom of the question, he said, hey, bring me one of your coins. Who's, whose face is on that? Well, they said that Caesar's, and he just answered wisely, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and give to God what is God's. 
And so he stumps them with that, from that question. The Sadducees, who didn't believe in any kind of resurrection, come and they have this, this story riddle thing that, that they probably used in their culture to, to, to undermine people's belief in a resurrection. And um, Jesus responds back wisely to them. And then finally, a Pharisee again comes and asks Jesus, well, what's the greatest commandment? And so Jesus answers, it's love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And then finally, we get to the end of chapter 22. These questions have been brought to Jesus, and then Jesus returns a question back at them in Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, What do you think about the Christ or the Messiah? It's the same word. Whose son is he? And they gave the, the correct answer. Everybody knew, every Jewish person knew that the Messiah was going to be the son of David, right? All, there's several promises. We'll see some of them even today that the Messiah would come from the line of David, all right? So when we get to Bethlehem and all that stuff, that's David's birth home or hometown. And so, so that they give the right answer. But then Jesus says, well, you got part of the answer right, but not all of it. And so in the next verse, he says to them, how is it then that David, in the Spirit, or under the influence of the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? So he's the son of David, but yet we're going to look at a verse from Psalm 110. He calls him Lord, and he quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Interesting verse. And then he finishes it with this question to them. If then David calls him Lord... How is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did, they, did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. You see, in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had some wrong concepts regarding the Messiah or regarding Christ. And whenever you see that word Messiah in the Old Testament more so, or, or Christ in the New Testament, even Jesus Christ, the last part that sometimes gets attached to Jesus, understand that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. Understand that Messiah comes from a Hebrew word meaning anointed one or God's chosen one. You find many people throughout the Old Testament when God tasks someone with a, a purpose, they, they would be anointed. Remember several kings, a couple of them, uh, when it's time for them to be king, they are anointed with oil. And, and different times you'll see that. And so that's that picture, right? God has, had a special servant. And so that's an Old Testament word means Messiah. Christ comes from a Greek word that means the very same thing. And so those words are interchangeable. And so the religious leaders, the Pharisees, thought correctly that the promised Messiah would be a descendant of David. He would come from that family line. But they thought incorrectly that he would be merely a great man who would reign on a physical throne of David. He would rid the Romans, run off the Romans, rid the Jews from the Roman influence, and they would be free again. They didn't, they, they, they had that understanding and they were wrong in that. They did not realize that he would also be the eternal God, the second person of the Trinity. And the Pharisees needed desperately to change their concept of the Messiah. And so Jesus is challenging them to expand their thinking of who this Messiah would be by taking them to Psalm 110. And so he asked them that question in Matthew twenty two forty two. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And when they correctly answered that he would be called the son of David, Jesus takes them back to this Psalm 110, verse 1, and asks them the simple question from this verse. 
If David then calls him Lord, again, David being the one prophesying that his son would someday be a king, but he calls him Lord, how then is he his son? And so you've got David calling someone who someday is going to be his son, but calling him Lord as if he already exists. And it creates this dilemma in their minds. They don't know what to say. But what Jesus wants them to see is that the Messiah was not only David's son, one who would be, one who would be born in the future, but he was also their Lord, one who was before, who had existed before. And so it expands this, this picture. And so the question remains for you and me to answer. Who is the Messiah? As we look at who Jesus came to be, I think, again, in times of uncertainty, in times of struggle, in times when things are confusing, and we're waiting for God to maybe do some things that we hope he will do and has promised to do, it's important to hold on to the who, to hold on to who Jesus is. And so I want us to go back to Psalm 110. There's just simple, seven simple verses that are there. But they are packed full of truth. They are packed full of, of, of knowledge about who this person was going to be. And while Jesus only quotes verse 1, if you continue to read, you find this beautiful picture, this beautiful portrait of God's Messiah, of God's anointed one, of the Christ who was to come. And so here's the simple thing. This isn't a hard outline. The, the psalm says that the Messiah, that Jesus, would be three things. He would be the king. He would be the eternal priest. And he would be the future judge of the earth. And so when you think of Christ, um, I, I want to remind you of those truths today by just walking through this psalm. Let's read Psalm 110, beginning in verse 1, um, down through verse 7. It says this, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb or the beginning of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgments among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. So he will be a king, he will be a priest, and he will be a judge. Those three things. That when you think of Jesus, I hope that you will fill your mind with those truths. So Psalm 110 is to totally what they call a messianic psalm. It's all about predicting a Messiah who was to come. It speaks little probably of David in his current setting, um, and yet God is giving this, this picture. One article I read this week talked about how if you were to take this passage, you can go and you can find the teachings of 14 different key truths in these seven small verses. But this was just packed full of truths about Christ and, and what he's done. You can find things about the doctrine of the Trinity, the incarnation of Christ, the sufferings of Christ, Christ's completed work, his resurrection, ascension, and intercession for us. You can find his church and the gathering of his people in the church. The last judgment, day of wrath, remission of sins, resurrection of the body, and life everlasting, and, and on and on it could go. That's a lot, but we're only going to look at those three simple things, though. I, I just want you to leave here today thinking about who is this Jesus that I worship um, at Christmas time? Who is this Jesus I give thanks to at Thanksgiving time? Who is this Jesus who I, I claim to follow as the leader of my life? 
Well, first, this Jesus is the Messiah who is the king of the earth. He reminds us in this text that he is the king of the earth. Now, there's a couple different attributes of this king that we're pointed towards. Uh, In verse 1, we're pointed towards the person of this Messiah king and how he is both God and man. Again, we kind of already dipped into that a little bit, that David, um, as he writes this, 900,000 years before Jesus shows up, um, talks about this one who was to come. He would be his son and his descendants. But yet he's also, it says the Lord, you notice it's the capital L-O-R-D, that means it's the word Yahweh in Hebrew. Your English translation is trying to help you with that. And then it says, the Lord says to my Lord, it's Adonai, another name for God, L-O-R-D, lowercase O-R-D. And so you've got God speaking to God in this situation. You've got a picture of, of God speaking to, God the Father speaking to the Son. And so you get this picture of, of, of his divinity, that the son of David isn't just a son, but he's also God. And so you get this deep, beautiful picture of this person of the Messiah. But you also get this picture of the position that he holds. If it goes, as you go on and read in verse 1, he says, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Sitting at the right hand of a person of power meant that you also were in a position of power. Um, remember later on when Jesus is, is doing his ministry and James and John, uh, his disciples, his, their mom comes and says, hey, uh, when you enter your kingdom, would you allow my sons to sit on your right and your left? What she's asking for is the positions of power. Remember when you take your, your whole kingdom thing, would you put my sons in the most prominent positions? And that's what he is saying about Jesus, that he will reign um, as as king. It's that reigning attitude of it. And he says, until I make your enemies a footstool. Now circle that word until, because that word until is important in this text, and we'll come back to it at the end here. But he says, until I make your enemies a footstool. There was an ancient custom that if you were a conquering king, uh, defeating a people, that you would come and, um, and, and you would kind of put your foot on someone's neck, um, just to kind of uh, show them that you've beat them, right? We still see that in the world of athletics and other places that someone does some great thing and someone's on the ground, that they'll step over them to kind of show their dominance of them. And that's the same thing. And so you see the, the king's person, that he is both God and man. You see his position. He rules exalted at the right hand of God. And you also see how that rule is exerted, where you see the power of the Messiah King that is exercised through his people you notice in verses 2, it says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. So how does God rule? Well, verse 3 tells us, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. And so God rules through a people who, um, um, who freely, uh, freely offer themselves in service to God. There is no enslavement. There is no forced uh, labor here. This is a group of people who recognize the greatness of the king and who freely offer themselves in service of the king to do the king's bidding. It's a picture of what it looks like for you and I, and what it should look like for you and I to follow as Jesus as our king. And so we see this picture of Jesus as our king. He sits, he, he, of, his great, of his divine nature, uh, of his beautiful seat of power, and that we as people are his servants, uh, accomplishing his will through the world 
And again, we'll come back to that word until, until this is all done. So in that gap, from the time he sits there to the time everything is done, um, God is working through his people. And so Jesus is a king. Jesus, the Messiah, is king. Number two, the Messiah is also an eternal priest. All right? Um, I don't know if you like the random names in the Bible, but there's a cool one that this text brings up. It's Melchizedek. Can everybody say Melchizedek? That wasn't very enthusiastic. Melchizedek. All right, I got the front rows talking. Melchizedek. All right, very good. Thank you. The front rows just got louder. I don't know if anybody in the back ever said it, but it's good. Thank you. Melchizedek, right? It's, it's a name that's obscure. It's a name that you don't read a lot about, but when it is brought up, it is brought up in significant ways and places, all right? And so Jesus the Messiah is an eternal priest, and, and the comparison that, um, that David makes is with not Aaron— like, if you remember when the Old Testament was started and, and the, the, new, the Old Covenant was given, Moses went up on the mountain and got the Ten Commandments, and he came down from the mountain and said, okay, in this new system, this covenant, we're going to have priests, and all of the priests are going to come from my brother Aaron's line. And so if you wanted to be a priest in uh, Israel, you had to be from Aaron's family. Well, when... There's a problem there because Jesus was not from, he was from David's line, but he was not from Aaron's line. And so how could Jesus be both king and priest? Well, I think it partly goes to David, but more importantly, Jesus is a priest in the order after, what's their name? Melchizedek. Thank you, Don. Melchizedek. All right. Very good. All right. Melchizedek. All right. Um, so when the Lord said, but nobody begins here. The Lord has sworn and not changed his mind. Okay. He emphasizes twice the seriousness of this. He is going to do this. It's important. When he swears something, it's doubly important. So he says, you are a priest forever after the order or in the line of or in the likeness of Melchizedek. So who in the world is Melchizedek? Well, if you go back to Genesis chapter 14, you are introduced to Melchizedek in a small random passage of scripture. Abraham has been... Um, out in war. He's been attacked. He goes, and I think this is where he rescues his nephew Lot, and, and he's kind of won a big battle, and he comes home from battle, and it says that Melchizedek, in Genesis 14, verses 18 through 20, um, comes out from Salem, which eventually will, will be renamed as Jerusalem. But Salem is a city that means peace. It's Jerusalem. It's that city. It's the same uh, property. Um, and, and Melchizedek, whose name in Hebrew means the king of righteousness, he comes out of nowhere. He refreshes Abraham. He's tired. He gives him bread and wine, and, um, and he blesses him. He speaks this beautiful blessing over Abraham's life, and then he receives a tithe of all Abraham's spoils of war. And he's called a priest of God most high. And, and a priest does what? They act as a mediator, as a go-between between God and people. Well, Melchizedek stood between God and Abraham to confer God's blessings on Abraham and to receive Abraham's worship, his tithes, back to God, to present to God. And so he appears out of nowhere in some ways. Um, nothing, nowhere else in, in Genesis do you see his name appear. But yet, Scripture later, Psalm 110 picks this up. If you read the book of Hebrews, you're going to find chapters 5, 6, and 7. As it compares to what kind of priest is Jesus... Um, it points us to Melchizedek and that the new covenant that we talked about a month or so ago, which I'm sure is fresh on your minds, uh, that new covenant that Jesus came to establish is a better covenant because it's not based on 
the old covenant priest, but it's based on a better priest, which is Melchizedek. Now, why is Melchizedek better? Well, he's better um, two or three ways. We could dive deep into this, and I'm sure you're begging us to go deeper into this story and the meaning of Melchizedek. But let me give you three things why that's better, okay? Um, unlike Jewish kings who couldn't act as priests and kings, Jesus, because he's from Melchizedek, who was a king and he's a priest, Jesus is both priest and king. And so Jesus fills both those roles as our leader, but also as our go-between. He is our mediator. He is our priest. And so because he's in the line of Melchizedek, he could do that. But Jesus is also superior because he is an eternal priest. The Bible kind of spiritualizes Melchizedek to say that he's kind of like a guy who had no beginning, had no end. Um, and that's kind of the story of Jesus. One who had no beginning, who has no end. He is an eternal priest. He offers a better, better covenant by which we may draw near to God. And finally, Jesus is superior that he didn't need to offer daily sacrifices for his own sin. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27, I think highlights the idea that in the Old Testament, all those priests who, who did a, tried their best to serve God, but the first sacrifice they always had to offer was for their own sin. They had messed up, and so they had to get themselves right with God before they could serve anyone else. But Jesus didn't have to do that. Jesus offered a perfect sacrifice because his life was perfect. And so the sacrifice he could offer to us was one of forgiveness because he offered a perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And so the book of Hebrews 7 verse 25 finishes with this, that Jesus is able to save forever those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession or to be our interceder um, for us. And so... Um, Melchizedek gives us this picture of one that Jesus serves us as a priest. So he is our king uh, who sits enthroned at the right hand of God, working through his people. But his people are sinful, and so they need a priest. They need someone to make them right with God. And so Jesus not only is our king, he can serve as our priest uh, to make us right with God and to, and to be the one who stands between God and us to make us right, to offer us forgiveness, forgiveness uh, to pray for us, to intercede for us. And then finally... Um, Psalm 110 reminds us that the Messiah is the future judge of the earth. That he is the future judge of the earth. Um, verses 5 and 7 kind of shifts the image from a throne room where uh, the king sits beside uh, the king to now a kind of a more of a battlefield. And you get the idea that no longer, note where the Lord shifts in this picture. In verse 5, says, the Lord is now at your right hand. And it's as if he's saying, you know what? The, God the Father is going to fight your battles. He will be your strength. He will be your source of, of help. He will shatter the kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations in verse 6 and 7, filling them with corpses. In other words, this battle of victory. So we kind of switch from, uh, from priestly things to the, kind of the end of the Bible in Revelation 19, where you find these battle scenes where God, a day will come when God's patience and his waiting for us to repent will come to an end. And he will deal with those who, who hate him, those who oppose him. Um, he will deal with that in judgment. And so you find this picture of a judge who, who deals firmly and thoroughly um, and finally with those who oppose him. And so you get this picture, three things. What are they again? That he's a king and that he's our priest and that he is our judge. 
And so what do, we, what do we do with that? Just three things. I appreciated the way that Pastor Stephen Cole and the thing I read this week just summarized this text in a way that I think helps us to take it home and, and do good with it in our life. Number one, what do we do with this? That since Jesus is king, we should submit to his lordship willingly. That since he sits as king, just like that passage talked about in verse 3, that his servants just willingly are will recognize, hey, you're the great king. What can I do for you? I'll offer myself willingly to do what you want. What's your bidding? Send me. Since Jesus is the king, we should submit to his lordship willingly. Um, that is good news for us because each one of us is called to live faithfully and willingly before God. And you'll find a funny thing here. There it is. All right, you've got to turn the page over. I haven't lost the page of notes. What am I going to do? We couldn't just stop talking. Um, verse 10, or page 10 in my notes. I'm almost done, I promise. Uh, but just note this verse. Isaiah 45, verses 22 and 23 says this. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swell, swear allegiance. If you go in the New Testament, you'll find that the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul picks up that same theme that eventually every knee will bow before the king. And so we get to choose when I bow. And so the biblical invitation to all of us is bow now. Willingly bow your knee in submission and reverence and love for the king. Or else if we choose to be hard-hearted and stubborn and rebellious, God promises a day will come when you will bow your knee, but will not be because you willingly did so. And so the invitation is there um, to do so. Number two, um, since Jesus is priest, we should appropriate or grab a hold of his mediation gladly. Those are big words, but we should grab a hold of his ministry gladly to us. Um, you see, we already looked at the idea that he has secured our salvation. He is the one that once and for all a sacrifice was given. See Hebrews chapter 7, verse 27. And that means several things. It means that you have access to the Father through Jesus. Um, and that is good news. You and I have been given access to a place that, um, I love John's words before when he said that the, the veil between heaven and earth was brought close to the table and even so, more so at, at the communion table. I love that imagery because I think that's a picture of what Jesus does. He brings two parties who, who, who sin creates this wall between, but yet Jesus brings them together. And I love what Hebrews chapter 4 verses 15 and 16 say to us. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, whatever you're struggling with, Jesus has been there. He gets it. Yet he did so without sin. So let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, to that throne where we're not met with condemnation, rejection, but we're met with grace, that we may receive mercy and may find grace to help us in our time of need. And the best thing of all of this whole picture that Jesus is our priest, and I love this thought, not only that can we pray through Jesus to God, but also that Jesus is interceding before the throne for us. I grew up um, in, in Morberly with uh, an older lady, Mrs. Dale, um, who every time she saw me, she would tell me that she was praying for me. 
uh, she, did, she wasn't related to me. She just knew I was a bratty kid running around the church. Maybe that's, that was her only hope, this brat. <laughs> I'm going to pray for that kid. Um, but, uh, but she always told me in a sincere way, I'm, gonna, I'm praying for you. And maybe you've had parents, grandmas, grandpas, dads, somebody in your life saying, I'm just praying for you. And maybe you listen to that at the time. Maybe you don't. But it's comforting to know that someone's doing that for you. And how much more so that Jesus is praying for you. And I love this thought that Robert Murray um, McShane, excuse me, um, was a Scottish minister and he once wrote this. If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not, not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. What difference would that make if you lived every day knowing that Jesus was praying for you? Near the Father, for your good, for your strength, for your life. That he is your high priest who constantly intercedes before the heavenly father for you. And so finally, number three, since Jesus is judge, we should avoid his judgment fearfully. There's a serious tone at the end of this text. There's a serious tone as later Hebrews would grab a hold of that. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. And that's not the thing that Jesus wants to lead with, but that's a true reality. Jesus brings us life and the opportunity for new life. But if we reject that life, there's a fearfulness that we should look forward to because Jesus is judge. And oftentimes we like to think of Jesus and all the kind and soft things, but there is a hard side to Jesus as well. And he is patient. He waits for us. He is patient. Second Peter 3 reinforces that, that, well, why hasn't judgment come? Why hasn't all these things happened? Because he is patiently waiting for people to repent. But I told you to circle that word until when we began it and read it in verses 1-2 there. That word until, kind of if this was a map of history, that he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God until. And if we were to say, what's the, where are we at in the timeline? We're in the middle of until. Until the next stage starts. And that's when maybe our opportunities are gone. And so God invites us to fearfully, to respectfully, to understand those truths. To realize that the decisions that I make today matter. And so Christ is my king, and he is my priest, and he is my judge. And I hope that those thoughts and those truths will, will comfort you if you're walking through things that are hard or difficult or confusing in your life, that you'll know the who. You may not know all the what's and the when's, but you know the who. I, 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 my life is clinging to the king who is the priest who loves me and, and who someday will judge all the wrong and confusing and crazy things. I'm going to hold on to him in the midst of all of those things. Or maybe I'm living carelessly with those things. Maybe I'm not bowing my knee to the king and, and I'm not really grabbing a hold of the ministry of the priests and, and I'm just mocking the idea of the king as, as judge. And that's a f- dangerous thing to do with your life. And so my prayer for us today is that we would come humbly and joyfully to bow at the feet of the king. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and our Father, we thank you for these pictures. We thank you that the truth of who Jesus is builds us up. It solidifies us. It comforts us. It, it stabilizes us in a, in a world that can sometimes feel so crazy or so out of control whether that's around us or even within us. And so, Father, thank you for those true statements about our Messiah, about our Jesus. May we willfully and joyfully 
bow to the King of all kings. And may we fully embrace joyfully the ministry that he does for us, the prayers that he prays for us, the life that he laid down for us, the the gifts that he pours into us through his grace. And Father, may we live with a, a healthy respect that we would never want to wander far because um, judgment is real and we want to be found with the Lord in that time. And so Father, whatever steps we need to take in our life today, would you lead us? May our, our, may our hearts be soft and, and may your spirit lead us and convict us and, and point us in the right directions. We love you, Lord, and thank you for Christ and pray these things in his awesome name.